Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. One of the Buddha's most central teachings, absolute foundational for uh, any understanding of the Dharma, is the Paticca Samuppada. You don't have to know that word. What it means literally is a little bit difficult to translate directly into English. Essentially, the teaching is a list of stages that we go through in the process of human development. And it lists not only overall like a theory of how we develop, thoughts and behaviors are actually influenced by factors that are very often unconscious. The Buddha, in this Paticca Samabhata, basically outlines how we think, feel, and act, results in this series of, as I said, stages. And one of the earliest stages in this uh, teaching is what he calls Nama Rupa, which essentially is a proto-personality, a group of traits that are established very, very, very young in life. And they create what could be referred to as unconscious traits or predilections that play a very important role in how we perceive the world and how we act in the world. These unconsciously stored traits, and by the way, what Nama Rupa literally means is body-mind. It's kind of a very core development. It's stored for the entirety of our life. And these traits, when we come into contact with resonant experiences and situations in the world that trigger us, they create or send messages to us encouraging, urging, influencing how we respond to life's various situations. The messages are sent through what's called Vedana, or feeling. And they shape, these feelings shape how we, the Buddha said, not only perceive the world, but all of our desires, all of our behaviors, all of our subsequent thoughts grow out of these gut feelings. This observation, which was made some 2,500 years ago, which is pretty astonishing given the fact that it was only 100 years ago when Western psychology caught up to this and with the work of William James and the James Lang theory, finally realized that feelings, core emotional, somatic, and mental nonverbal experiences precede all of our thoughts and behaviors and sort of uh, condition how we respond to life. I'm going to explain this uh, much more concretely because it's so uh, wonderful to understand what this implies. So, um, from contemporary attachment theory and and other psychological modalities, it's clear today that early relational events, by which I mean how you interacted with your caregivers, your siblings, if you had them, early peers, early events in your life, uh, created what we could call uh, implicit memories. They're events that you do not consciously remember. In the first five years of life, all of the events are stored in either the amygdala or the right hemisphere, and both of those are in adult life, areas of memory or learnings that are not available to consciousness in the sense that you can recall them and tell them to another human being. That doesn't mean they didn't happen. It just means they happened at a time before the part of your brain, the region of your brain, the left hippocampus, which stores 
contextual memories that you can talk about with another human being and willingly recall develop. Your brain didn't actually, our human brains don't really start to wire the hippocampus until I think around age three or four. And generally they really only start working with any optimum quality around six or seven. So the core formative events of life happen before we have any, mem any ability to remember them willingly or volitionally. But they're still there in the background behind the scenes, and they're still looking out for anything that in childhood created a sense of danger, or anything in childhood that created a sense of joy and connection and security. And they're looking out for anything that reminds them these internal working models we now call in psychology. We're looking out for people that have expressions or behaviors or uh, actions or some visual, visual cues that remind us of our parents when our parents were attentive and loving and caring. And then on the other hand, of course, we're looking out for people who in some way have some uh, behavior, some facial expression, some manner of speaking, some uh, body language that reminds us of the times when our caregivers were scary, critical, unavailable, uh, inattentive. These implicit learnings are scanning the social environment, as it were, for signs of threat and safety. And when they encounter a situation that reminds us of a situation earlier in life that was scary, for instance, if in adult life we stumble upon a group of people that look at us in the same way that unfriendly kids in a schoolyard did when we were in kindergarten, it will trigger a somatic message. That's a physiological expression or a mental nonverbal message of anxiety, uh, hypervigilance. You're attention will become rattled, jumpy, fixated. Uh, there'll be some nonverbal message from these early functioning parts of the brain saying to you, even well throughout your life, saying, I'm not safe. This reminds me of a time deep in my buried past from an event that I can't recall consciously, but it's still there, and it's telling me I'm not safe. That's why human beings, of course, have panic attacks, anxiety attacks. That's why we procrastinate and stall at doing things where uh, we could grow and could uh, develop or uh, embrace life because something involved is triggering those buried internal working models of the world that were established early on in life saying this situation isn't safe. So the way these buried memories again speak, just to be clear, and it's important to know this is through the body or through states of attention. It's not like your conscious mind and your left brain which can talk to you through thoughts, inner chatter. That's how your left brain connects with you. It represents your life in words and symbols that you can consciously bring to mind whenever you want. But the early Implicit learnings of childhood cannot be voluntarily recalled. They're still there. They're what Freud called the repressed, but they aren't even really repressed. They're just forgotten memories that still influence us. Fortunately for us adults, we do form the uh, cortical frontal lobe regions that can override very often uh, or at least in some occasions, can override these early impulses. The way it works is when you develop a left hippocampus, you can remember situations where things didn't eat you alive or kill you, and you can reassure yourself when you start to get frightened or angry or uh, you want to disconnect. You can remind yourself of 
occasions where things worked out. You develop the ability to compare later memories and later events in your life and essentially override the gut feelings that are telling you, shit, I better get out of here, I better end this relationship, I better avoid this conversation, I better not uh, do this event. For example, in uh, childhood, I had a couple of times where I can, I've been told by my parents that I came home crying from very young from being made fun of by peers in school. If that was the only thing that happened in relationship to being visibly seen by peers, then there's no way I'd ever be able to do what I'm doing right now. Subsequently after that, I had events in my life where I remember I was in this ridiculously dreadful play called uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Develop positive memories with speaking in front of people. And so I am able to overcome the initial Vedana, the gut feeling saying, oh shit, I've got to go up in front of people and talk. I can overcome that but with these subsequent memories that very quickly override and allow me to do something that originally was very scary. While your amygdala and the right brain generalizes, your left brain discriminates, discerns, can tell the difference between something that's not necessarily scary and something that is. For example, it, you, everybody's amygdala is set to be frightened of snakes, pretty much. But then subsequently in life, many of us learn to d discern which snakes are not poisonous, and so we don't run screaming at the sight of a snake, a garden snake, for example, when you're on a trail. So that's the way it works. In childhood, because we don't have hippocampuses working to soothe us, to repair the wounds after an emotionally disappointing or scary event, the, childhood, the child relies on its parent to soothe, to, uh, to present attention and safety and security. And when the parent does it, that it repairs the child's uh, emotional wounds and then subsequently those events are processed and they're not left as unprocessed painful emotional wounds that will subsequently later on in life have uh, any effect on the way we behave. But there are times of course where even the best intentioned adult is not available and it happens in every childhood where there are events where we do not get soothed or appreciated or cared for in the aftermath. And those unprocessed wounds, because they are not essentially uh, deactivated, they turn into internal working models that will, in our adult life, trigger gut feelings saying, holy fuck, I got to get the hell out of here. We all have them to varying degrees, some of us more, some of us less. And essentially, I'll give you, I'm going to give you a, a bunch of examples, and maybe some of these examples you'll recognize. Whenever in life we find ourselves what's called, people say sometimes, overreacting, or um, having disproportionate or excessive emotional responses, to events that do not seem that scary, it's because in early life something very similar to this adult event happened and we were not soothed or healed or repaired in the aftermath. So we continually associate that event or that circumstance or that look with danger. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Early abandonments. If a child grows up with parents that have a very immediate um, separation that's not well processed, uh, the child very often will experience times of abandonment like death, because for a child being separated from a caregiver feels like death, especially 
uh, the primary caregiver. Um, in adult life, if a child had a series of abandonments that were never uh, healed through uh, caring attunement by a caregiver, the adult version of this child, when it grows up, will react to adult rejections when they get broken up with in a relationship. They will react excessively. They will do things such as, and I'm just learning about this, a lot of my counseling work I get to hear about things that I, uh, I think are wonderful or interesting. Apparently there's this new thing, internet stalking, which is uh, following the events of your ex's life for years after you, the relationship has ended, looking for, and it's interesting, uh, I found with people who do this that when we investigate it, the real, they never stop checking in until they find the, the exact image on Facebook that, they, that will hurt them the most. They're looking for this image of their ex happily with someone new, perhaps engaged, something that will feel like that gut to the, that kick to the stomach, to, because it truly finishes or finalizes the early emotional abandonment wound. It really articulates that buried memory and brings it back to life. Why people would want to uh, uh, experience the dreaded is really a fascinating uh, psychological phenomenon. Dostoevsky wrote that gamblers do not gamble to win. They gamble for the experience of losing everything. Because it reminds them of that time in life where their parents or everything was, was terrible. And they're just recreating the dreaded, because that's maybe the time they felt most alive, or those emotions are the most strongly felt. Go figure. But um, early social rejections by peers uh, very often leads to adult social anxiety, of course. Early childhood violence. I grew up with a fair amount of violence. Uh, My dad was a rather brutal alcoholic, can lead to anger suppression because the child, when it grows up with a, a parent that is violent or expresses uncontrollable rage, the child becomes terrified of its own anger. It believes its own anger will be exactly like its parents. It will be uncontrollable. It will lead to damage. So the child will learn to repress it through sadness, and then in adult life, depression or hypervigilance will very often be the residual result of um, a childhood violence. Very often as well, uh, early childhood violence uh, is expressed in addiction to opiates, which is why there's an opiate epidemic. Opiates happen to be um, clinically well established as... um, a way to rid people of the, the somatic experience of anger. Early conflicts uh, that were not resolved between the child and parents, the child and other siblings, will lead into a host of uh, adult symptoms such as uh, conflict avoidance, that's avoiding any conversation that could turn difficult or where somebody might be angry with us. Excessive self-reliance in adult life grows out of unresolved conflicts where people feel a very foundational need to never ask for help and never to rely on anyone else for money or financial support. Feelings of shame, feelings of uh, imposter syndrome very often happen in family when in early life family systems were not capable of um, appreciating the child's endeavor, 
where the child would bring creative or exploratory remarks and the parents would shrug it off. Very often that leads to adult feelings of being a fraud. Um, in my experience, uh, working with people in counseling, almost uh, all of these adult, uh, emotionally excessive responses to adult stimuli uh, are most likely to happen in things in places that remind us of our family systems, namely work, roommate, and relationships. All those areas were vulnerable. All those areas, there's a feeling of, uh, at times, uh, being uh, evaluated for reasons we don't understand. And as it so happens in New York, work, roommates, and relationships pretty much is one's entire life, it seems. <laughs> so, when we are overwhelmed by these triggers, these somatic and mental cues, that are saying, I don't feel safe now. I've got to avoid this person because this situation reminds me of a time early on in childhood where I was not safe. So I've got to get out of here. I've got to, um, I've got to defend myself at all costs. I've got to throw a tantrum. I've got to uh, uh, do anything to be seen because I won't be heard. Uh, whatever the impulse is urging, when people feel strong impulses as a way to regulate, rather than talking about it or disclosing it with others, we tend to, as adults, try to auto-regulate through compulsive behaviors, such as um, drinking, uh, drugs, television, social media, shopping, etc., etc., etc. The compulsive behaviors become a way to essentially tamper down, stop, turn off the strong feelings that are pushing us, saying, I'm not safe right now. I've got to change. I've got to get out of here. I've got to stop this from happening. One of the profound implications of these gut feelings, which are triggered by these early forgotten memories and are constantly pushing us towards security at all costs um, is that when our, we have strong feelings, we tend to project the messages that they're sending to us onto the external objects in the world and we blame the people that we're around or the situations as being bad or good depending upon really something that's going on internally. So I'll give you an example to make this clear. Um, Joseph Ledoux, the, the eminent neuros, uh, neuroscientist at NYU, who's the, pretty much the world's authority on fear and how it arises, talks about this example I use a lot of uh, two people going through a breakup and they're at a restaurant and they are uh, both depressed and they're looking down at a tablecloth that's checkered, and then years and years later, uh, one of the members of this couple will see somebody wearing a checkered shirt. They will start to feel this strong negative gut feeling saying, I'm not safe, this is bad. And then they will blame the person that they're just meeting. There's something wrong with this guy. I'm not getting a good feeling about him simply because this person is wearing a signifier of an earlier forgotten event in life that was painful. All the time in our lives, we are evaluating places, cuisines, new people, new situations, simply based on the old feelings that are essentially activated by them. We confuse the way we feel internally with intrinsic qualities of people and places in the world around us. There was a fascinating study where they had people sit down in a comfortable chair and they had people stand on one leg, right? So half sitting in a comfortable chair and half standing on one leg. 
and they would ask these individuals one by one to talk about their relationships. And invariably, the ones who were sitting comfortably would say positive things <laughs> about the people that they were currently in a relationship with, whereas the people who were standing on one leg would invariably say negative things, simply based on the fact that they were experiencing a gut feeling of discomfort, imbalance, lack of ease. We are, in our lives, constantly evaluating the world around us based on feelings of the past. Card players uh, always unconsciously know, well before they consciously know, when a deck's good or something they should continue holding. I don't know anything, but you know, when they should bet more or fold. Unconsciously, the gut feelings, because it's going through all of previous experiences really past that are forgotten and it's comparing it the situation and it's saying through the body don't proceed or proceed and that's an example of some time where we should trust our gut if you're an interior designer and you've designed you know hundreds and hundreds of interiors <laughs> you know the the activity is safe to follow your gut because you're rifling through all of the previous times that have turned out well and you're making gut decisions very, very fast. Buddha, and we're going to get now to the solution, how we work with old uh, feelings based on old emotionally wounding events, how we begin the process of healing those and beginning to no longer be propelled by these gut feelings, which are so influential in our life because we're not aware of them. We live largely disembodied life, where we are focusing on what other people are doing, we're focusing on our thoughts, but we're not very often aware of the viscera between the throat, the chest, the belly, where the vagal vagus nerve creates the contractions, which are the messages from our right brain saying, I don't feel very safe here. The greatest, uh, one of the greatest neuropsychologists alive is a guy by the name of Antonio Damasio, and he showed in his research that almost all decisions and behaviors by adults are conditioned by gut feelings and that those gut feelings are based on past experiences. If you'd like to read about it, it's all in a book called The Cart's Era, which is a very, very uh, wonderful, beautifully written book on his research. So what to do? We've got these gut feelings that are telling us to stay or leave, approach or withdraw. It's basically a very core iteration of the, of the, uh, the autonomic nervous system, which has two settings, relax, Stay, connect, leave, get rid of, fight, fly, get out of here. That's the two settings. And the Buddha said there are two basic settings to the gut feelings, which are comfort and discomfort. Comfort being stay, I'm okay, I, I want more of this. Discomfort being I don't like what's going on, this is reminding me of something in my past which really sucked when I was a child, so I should get out of here. I don't want to be a part of this. So what to do is we develop ongoing awareness of these core feelings, or what Damasio calls somatic markers, that are essentially the foundation of all human decision-making. And all of our thoughts and behaviors grow from these. If you are feeling negative feelings, you will not be able to have positive, welcoming, warm thoughts about a situation in your life, even if it's a wonderful situation. Your thoughts and your behaviors will push you, at the very least, to not feel comfortable and to consider uh, other alternatives. So we don't want to be a slave to these core messages. We have to be aware of them. That's what the Buddha's foundational teaching uh, and uh, all the commentaries and the Buddhist uh, core text, the Abhidhamma, is that the only escape from the stress and suffering and craving and clinging and grasping and 
uh, erratic behaviors that follow strong negative or positive feelings based on early life experiences is by not repressing them, not acting out on them, but the third choice, observing them. Be able to find your feelings, the nonverbal feelings that are pushing you in either direction and pay attention. Be with them. Observe them. In the Buddha's instructions, it's basically know whether the gut feelings, they'll be some in the face, but in the throat, the chest, the belly, that's the vagal vagus nerve, that's where it goes down the front of the body. So you don't have to worry about feelings in your back or in your legs. Uh, Focus on the front of the body. That's where somatic feelings will be. And learn to discern when your body is telling you to stay or to leave, to relax or to defend yourself. Get to understand the core messages that the inner child, as it were, is sending you, is telling you to do. We don't act out, we don't repress, we observe, we know, we create a safe container. The other factor is sometimes these messages are attentional. They're not just in the body, but they're in the quality of awareness. When we are hypervigilant, when we are triggered by uh, a current experience where somebody's giving us a look that's exactly the same look that a parent gave us when uh, we made a mistake or we failed a test or we uh, forgot to do something. And so you get that look in adult life and you start, we start to have this contraction. It might not only be in the body, it also might be a quality of mind where suddenly awareness will zoom in tight, a close-up on their facial expression. We won't see anything else. Or the mind will become jumpy and we won't be able to settle our awareness. That's what hypervigilance does. On the other hand, if you're relaxed and comfortable, your awareness will settle and it will become expansive and wide open. You'll open into a situation. When you're in a place that you love, you will, uh, your awareness will take in the entire scene. When you feel threatened, your awareness will squeeze in, Tamiyata, the Buddha called it, and look for specific threats. That's the left hemisphere being driven by the right now, looking for a threat. So our job is not only to pay attention to the world around us, which is called exteroception, and not only to listen to our thoughts, which is called cognition, but to develop what's called interoception, which is today called mindfulness. It's knowing what, in every situation of your life, your body-mind, your nama-rupa, is telling you, I feel comfortable right now, or I don't really feel comfortable right now. Maybe very subtle variations. Maybe you might even be neutral, but almost always... Due to our, the human autonomic nervous system, you will be moving between one of those settings and every thought, behavior, every, um, every decision we make grows from those two settings, those two paths. This is very well established, not only by the work of Leslie Greenberg, Louis Casalino, Alan Shore, I'm just naming my favorite neuropsychologist, but essentially uh, in clinical psychology they call these two states approach and withdrawal. In every moment of your life you either want to approach, connect, relax into, be with, or you want to withdraw. Maybe it's subtle, maybe it's really strong as in a panic attack or a real need to flee something, but you're always in those two states. And the degree that you can know those two states and be, be able to mitigate them, then you have far greater choices in your life. You can go through things that were previously scary for you. You can stay in relationships or in interactions that were previously painful. You can walk through conflicts and difficult conversations that in the past you'd be terrified of having. If you can find the 
feeling state that you're in and learn how to create a safe container, relaxing around it, breathing through it, softening it with the breath, uh, sending it metta, the feelings. And then over time, what's brilliant is the more we do this, the more we can discern really innocent experiences in adult life from real abandonments. Until we do this work, when people send a text to somebody that's important to them, and if that person doesn't respond to the text, if they're not aware of their gut feelings, they will start to feel completely abandoned. Because very often the gut feelings are saying, holy shit, I sent them a text, what's up? And I didn't get a text back. They, I'm, I'm not aware of it, but I'm feeling all this tension in my stomach and my, thro- my throat and my chest. My, my awareness is fixated on my phone and I'm not getting that text back. Holy shit, this is terrible. If we're aware of this, these gut feelings, this Vedana state, then we can breathe, relax, and we can develop what's called distress tolerance, where we'll no longer be driven by the gut feelings from the past, where abandonments were really, really, really... You know, they were... For a child, an abandonment is death. For an adult, not getting a text back is not death. (laughs) But we don't discern the difference emotionally until we develop sustained, lasting mindfulness. So that's what we're going to do right now in the meditation. So this is going to be a meditation called uh, Awareness or Mindfulness of Feelings. And what we're going to do is become aware of the underlying feelings that are going on at every moment. So before we do this, we want to settle our attention, really arrive. And we're even going to use feelings to do that. When we arrive at a place in life that's really special to us, that spot on the beach, that hammock in a countryside setting or a place in a park that we like to sit. What makes it so wonderful an experience is not so much only the vista, the place that we're at, but it's the fact that when we get to those places that the body relaxes, the body softens, And that sends us a message that we're safe, we're okay, we're home, we can let go. We don't have to plan or think or achieve anything. So what feeling do you have when your body, where you reach that that place in your life that you most look forward to reaching? Do you have that feeling of your shoulder, shoulders dropping, can you drop them? You have a feeling of your chest opening up or your belly softening. The reason why we love places, we love certain situations, is not just because of any extrinsic quality, but because of the way we allow ourselves to feel that feelings that are triggered by being there. So you can actually create the feeling of being safe, arriving in life by having that quality in the breath that really full, complete in-breath followed by the long, released out-breath. But when you finish with all your responsibilities and there's a three-day weekend ahead and you get to connect with an old friend that you love 
and you relax into a really comfortable sofa and you feel completely at home, all those triggered feelings in the body that associates that place with safety, you can create that feeling. You could have it right here. Just continually relaxing, dropping the shoulders, softening the belly, What does it feel like to be at a destination you've been seeking, a place where you don't have to plan anything for the future, you don't have to keep track of anything that's going on elsewhere, you don't have to reflect on anything from the past. just create the feeling of arriving so for a little while just stay with the sensations that are naturally occurring on their own There's the sound of cars, trucks, traffic from the Bowery below, drifting up into the room. Horns. The sound of people in the street talking. Try to hear the most distant sound to the left most distant sound to the right to keep your awareness spacious and open and also be aware of any lights flickering behind closed eyelids not images that you're creating just closed eye visuals are simply neural processes that create flickers of light and color. Be aware of the quality of breathing in and breathing out. Knowing that you're breathing in by the expansion the upward movement of energy and sensation in the body, knowing that you're breathing out by the sensation of releasing energy moving down the body, expansion, contraction, movement of energy. The breath is happening entirely on its own. It doesn't need to be chaperoned, but if you feel that you'd like to relax a little more, just extend the out-breath a little bit. If you're tired and drowsy, you can open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you. So while we're just developing a settled awareness, the most important practice is how you relate 
to your mind when it drifts away from the present and gets swallowed up by a thought, gets pulled away by a memory or some construction of the mind, some fabrication. And the key is just to be really kind, really gentle, compassionate, no impatience, no frustration at all. The most profound work in meditation starts with simply greeting the times we drift away with nothing but kindness, good humor, just bring your awareness back to the present, and reward yourself with a really relaxing, full breath, relax the slight stress that will have developed in the body. When we're lost in thought, the body becomes armored, tight, the shoulders begin to contract, the stomach begins to contract as well, abdominal <coughs> muscles. So when you return to your home in the present, just reward yourself by relaxing and easing all those muscles.
So at this point you can allow the sensations of the present, especially the sounds and the lights behind closed eyelids, you can allow them to recede. And just take a moment to scan your body and see how you feel in this moment. That will be instructive as we move on in this practice, just to get a sense of how you feel after you've been just staying as present as you can for a little while. You, how does the body feel? How's the stomach? How's the breath? Is it long or short, shallow or deep? Do you feel your chest moving, or <coughs> does it feel mostly very soft and faint? So bring to mind a event recently that was challenging, difficult, an interpersonal event an interaction that was slightly unpleasant or very much unpleasant, where you felt frustrated, unheard, where there was a strong sense of disappointment, anger, or sadness associated with it. Just hold the image You can even replay a little bit of it in your mind just to create the flavor of it. And as you bring this event to mind and you hold it in awareness, you can even give it a title. The conversation was so-and-so. Bring your awareness back to the Feelings in the front of the body, particularly the stomach, the chest, the throat, and the face. Do you feel any, even the shoulders, do you feel any slight contraction? What are the feelings that are evoked by this memory? Do you notice any subtle shift in the mind when you hold this memory? Is there a slight jumpiness and attention. Does your mind feel a little bit more claustrophobic? What are the nonverbal internal states the Buddha called feelings feeling tones that are evoked by difficult conflicts. These are the feelings that steer our reactions, our choices, our thoughts. They all grow from these gut feelings. bring to mind now an interaction with somebody that's really pleasant, somebody you really like to see, some interaction that just felt really good recently. You can just visualize the person. And as you do so, again, bring your awareness to the front of the body, And if it's really somebody that you feel connected with, you should notice that the messages sent by your amygdala and nervous system goes into the parasympathetic, relax, ease, comfortable. You should start to feel a longer out-breath, any tightness previously, and the belly will begin to soften. The shoulders will settle. 
So at this point, just open your awareness to allow anything that wants to grab your attention. It could be a thought about the future, a plan you have to make, an unresolved issue with someone, event from the past. It could even be an external sensation, a sound in the room. Whatever grabs your attention, just allow it to be there, but instead of climbing entirely into the thought or sensation, when that thought is present, see how it affects the feelings. What feelings arrive with it. And if it's a difficult thought, after you feel the tightness in your belly, your chest, the contraction or a hollowness there, or perhaps the shoulders moving up, locking. If it's a negative thought or fear or worry, once you feel what's present, then begin to breathe into it and soften it. So you transform your relationship with this mental content that's visited you. You'll find that it profoundly changes how we relate to life experience if we relax, soften the body, the breath, open up awareness, make it more spacious. The request, as usual, is when you hear the sound, don't open your eyes and simply look around the room because you'll lose awareness of the feelings that we're trying to develop sustained awareness of. If we want to bring this practice into life, it's not just something we do in the cushion, it's something that we do in all the resonant experiences of life. It's an ongoing awareness of the messages our right brain is sending us the messages the inner child wants us to hear. 
So the way we do that is simply open your eyes just enough to look at the ground in front of you and integrate awareness of light and color into your awareness of the body so that you're sharing awareness. You're not allowing the world around you and your thoughts to consume all of your attention.